You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Why are we talking about skin cancer? Well, there's a lot of it out there, and these are just the front covers uh, from several years ago, Newsweek and U.S. News Report, John McCain obviously dying from his um, brain tumor now, but he's had extensive skin cancers in the past, and U.S. News and World Report's sunstruck skin cancers, the tan worth the risk. So it's something that we see every day in our offices. So we'll start with basal cell carcinoma, which is the most common of the skin cancers that we see. It's usually asymptomatic. Most of the time, patients will come to the office because they actually have bleeding. And the most common story that I hear is it looked like a pimple, it looked like a bug bite, and then it went away and got better, and then it came back again. But then my wife made me come in because I was getting blood on the pillow every night. Um, it's very common, probably three to four million cases per year. When I was a resident many years ago, it was always, there's about a million cases, but now that we're actually starting to mine the data a little bit better, it looks like there's a, a lot of basal cell cancer out there. Um, as you know, most of it's always going to be in the sun-exposed areas. In my practice, which is a referral practice for skin cancer, its most common site is the central face, especially the nose, which is the more challenging area to take care of. It definitely increases with age because of cumulative sun exposure, and also because with age, our repair enzyme mechanisms are just not as robust as they were when we were younger. There's an increasing incidence in younger patients, which is really quite disturbing, especially amongst women. There is a good um, article that came out of the Mayo Clinic a few years ago looking at the rise of basal cell cancers and squamous cell cancers in a younger population, with women definitely dominating that probably had something to do with tanning booth exposure, but there may be other reasons why we're seeing this. Um, it was highly unusual when I was doing my training to see someone in their 20s or 30s with a basal cell cancer, and now it's a daily occurrence. And keep in mind that probably 30 to 40 percent of people who have had one cancer will develop another basal cell cancer within two to three years. And so that's why it's important to see them back, you know, on a regular basis every six to 12 months. Not so much that the cancer that you just treated is going to recur, but they're going to get more skin cancers. Again, etiology, UV exposure is the most common. We're all working very hard to do away with the tanning booths, um, but I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing more skin cancers. Remember, there's a, probably a 15 to 20-year lag between when we have exposure and when we see cancers developing. Patients with prior radiation can get skin cancers. Genetics is certainly a factor with people with fair skin having the most trouble and patients with basal cell nevus syndrome being the most common genetic disorder with lots of skin cancers. Don't see much arsenic exposure anymore. We used to see it with well water and with farmers and fertilizer, uh, but it's of historical significance. So not all basal cell cancers look the same. Uh, they don't all appear the same, and you know there's different subtypes of basal cell cancers. So when patients ask you, well, what am I looking for? It's kind of hard to say sometimes because there's a big difference between what a superficial basal cell cancer looks like and what a very ill-defined morpheiform basal cell cancer looks like. I think this is probably the most uh, misdiagnosed skin cancer amongst my primary care colleagues. They often will say you got a little patch of numular eczema or you have a little bit of a dermatophyte, and oftentimes these superficial basal cell cancers are missed for quite a long period of time until they show up in your office. The nodular basal cell cancer is the most common type, uh, classic pearly papule with tetanic vessels, pretty easy to see sometimes even as you walk into the room. Keep in mind that some basal cell cancers can be pigmented. Um, differential diagnosis usually includes a nodular melanoma, so when the BOPS report comes back, 
It's good news, bad news. It's not a melanoma. It's a pigmented basal cell cancer. And this is the most challenging diagnosis to make is this ill-defined um, morpheiform basal cell cancer. Again, the term morpheiform because it looks like morphia, just a little white scar. Patients say, gosh, I thought I had a chicken pox scar, but then it started to get bigger. So oftentimes it will be described as a scar. And this is something that I pick up all the time when patients come in to see me for Mohs surgery. And I say, oh, by the way, what's that little white spot on your skin? But it can be very, very subtle. And again, what I see most commonly is recurrence. Um, and keep in mind that most of the time recurrence can be multifocal, which makes it a little bit more challenging to treat. So it's not just usually one area that recurs, but usually multifocal areas that recur with a basal cell cancer. Prognosis obviously is good. Um, you know, I hear all the time, well, Dr. Brown, why should I even have this treated? It's not going to kill me. So that, you know, the risk of metastatic disease is extremely small um, in my 30 years of, of doing this, I've seen probably two metastatic basal cells. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. But the reason we treat them is that they can be extremely destructive. They can get into muscle. They can get into cartilage. They can get down to bone. Um, also, as we talked about, multiple basal cell cancers are common. So this is what happens if you don't treat it. And I'd like to say this is an unusual presentation, but um, I see this all the time, people coming in and they just have denied that they've got something bad going on there and they take their hat off or they take their scarf off and they have this large rodent basal cell cancer. So when I think about basal cell cancers or when I think about skin cancers in general, I always try to divide them into low risk and high risk because that is what is going to determine how I approach that patient. So the low risk basal cell cancers are those that have a superficial or nodular histology, smaller size, well-defined clinical margins, usually location off that head and neck area, and tumors that have not been treated before that are not recurrent. Those are, that's my low-risk basal cell cancer category. The high-risk group, which is what I get a lot of from my referral um, dermatologists, is an aggressive growth pattern histologically, recurrent disease, larger size basal cell cancers, anything that shows up in the H zone or the mask zone of the face, um, immunosuppression, such as our organ transplant patients, and any time we have had prior radiation therapy. Those are high risk or difficult to treat basal cell cancers. So here's a patient that came in for a recurrence. Uh, you can see the previous linear surgical line that's well marked out with a small recurrence at the edge. But keep in mind, it's usually not just that small recurrence at the edge. It's usually significant disease underneath the scar. And once this tracked out, you can see that it's usually fairly extensive when you have a recurrence. Histology is very important. You have to know your pathologist who reads these because they use different terminology. Aggressive growth pattern can include sclerosing, infiltrative, morpheiform, micronodular, basosquamous, keratotic, and any time they say perineural invasion. So there's different terms that your pathologist may use to describe this high-risk histology, and that's what it looks like under the microscope. That's a basosquamous infiltrating basal cell carcinoma. And obviously, anytime you see tumor around a nerve, perineural invasion is a more high-risk basal cell cancer. So this is an ill-defined infiltrative basal cell cancer in that central facial area, um, tracking out after a couple stages of Mohs surgery. This was an interesting study published a few years ago looking at um, the histology of the tumor and whether it made a difference as far as how easy it was to excise it. And what they did is they did a standard four millimeter margin, um, excisional margin, and then they checked it all as they were doing most surgery. And you can see that for nodular and superficial basal cell cancers, you're able to achieve clear margins pretty easily, 94, 96% of the time. 
Once you got into those aggressive growth patterns, micronodular, infiltrative, morpheiform, you can see trying to achieve a clear margin became much more difficult, you know, 19%, 27%, 33%. So again, histology, extremely important in defining what your therapeutic approach is going to be. Tumor size is also important. These are the current recommendations that we use for the appropriate use criteria for most surgery. If it's on the trunk or extremities, greater than two centimeters is more high risk. On the cheek, forehead, scalp, or neck, greater than a centimeter. And then in that central mask area, greater than six millimeters. And again, I have it pretty easy to see this is a very large tumor. Uh, this was also recurrent, so you can see fairly extensive and fairly deep. Uh, location, as we've mentioned, is important. We talk about the embryonic fusion planes as being a high-risk area, and that basically encompasses that mask area that we talked about in the perinasal area, um, around the lips and the mouth, eyelids, uh, medial canthal area. You would not think that that's a common area for basal cell cancers, but extremely common, and they can be fairly aggressive. And then in the pre- and post-auricular regions, these are all high-risk areas for um, difficult-to-treat cancers. And again, Medial canthus, very common. I see this every day, and they can be fairly extensive once they track them out. Um, pre- and post-auricular areas, again, um, difficult tumors, and again, in these embryonic fusion planes areas where they can track out for quite a distance. This patient had previous radiation. You can see the multifocal recurrence and a fairly large defect. So again, these are all high-risk parameters for your basal cell cancer. Now, those of you who uh, have not looked at your Blue Journal recently, this just came out a couple months ago, Guidelines of Care for the Management of Basal Cell Cancer. The article following it was Guidelines of Care for the Management of Squamous Cell Cancer. Um, this was an expert working group. Uh, my name is in there somewheres. Um, it was an evidence-based approach um, looking at articles published from 1960 to 2015 um, over 1,000 articles were reviewed. We used just under 200 articles to come up with our guidelines. And again, it's interesting in that this is the one sentence that came out of the guidelines, which is, um, in general, treatment of basal cell carcinoma is effectively accomplished by surgical therapy. There are relatively few exceptions to this guiding principle. So surgery is the way to go. I am going to talk about non-surgical approaches because I th think that's important also. So treatment options for basal cell cancer, we basically have surgical versus non-surgical options. We're going to talk about surgery now. And then the question is, do you want margin control, or is margin control not that important? And this goes into your decision-making process. We need to define low-risk, high-risk, as we just talked about. We need to know the cure rates for the procedures when we talk to the patients. Some patients are not comfortable with a 90% cure rate. They want a 98% cure rate. Some patients want to know that they have clear margins versus patients that are okay with a procedure that doesn't give you histologic margins. Um, cost is important. You need to know the cost for these procedures. Um, Mohs surgery is more expensive than scraping and burning a cancer. Radiation therapy is way more expensive than Mohs surgery. How safe are these procedures? Fortunately, they're all pretty safe. Our complication rate with dermatologic surgery is extremely low, which is, which is very, very good. And then how well is it tolerated and what are the different patient variables? patient's age, their cosmetic concerns, their medical com comorbidities. These all go into your surgical decision-making process. So let's start with crow surgery. I do not use much crow surgery for skin cancers. I use it, obviously, a ton for actinic keratosis. Um, it can be utilized for superficial basal cell cancers, for Bowen's disease. Um, it can be used if the patient is not going to tolerate a surgical procedure. If you're going to do it, ideally you should be using a cryoprobe, which is basically a needle that you insert at the base of the tumor. You can actually 
uh, measure what your uh, freezing is. It should be somewhere between minus 25 to minus 50 centigrade. The problem with cryosurgery is that the cure rates are pretty good, but healing is slow. You get a pretty significant eschar. It takes six to eight weeks to heal over, and they almost always, always, always have hypopigmentation. Um, but it's an option, um, but I don't use it very much for my skin cancers. Now, if I have my farmer from upstate New York who comes in and he's got a back full of superficial basal cells, sure, I'm going to pull out my cryac and, and freeze a bunch of those pretty aggressively. Curatage is one of our more common uh, procedures that we use as, as uh, dermatologic providers. It's quick. It's relatively easy to learn. Uh, my residents, the hardest part is teaching them which side of the cred is sharp and which side is dull. Once they have that figured out, they're pretty good. Um, it's a lower cost. Um, and, it, and if you pick the right tumor, it has a very acceptable cure rate. The disadvantage is, is that there can be unpredictable cosmesis. Um, some of the worst hypertrophic scars I see are from ED and C sites on the trunk and the extremities. Healing can be slower. It's going to be two to four weeks to heal over. It's an open wound. There is no margin control. So if the patient wants to know that my margins are clear, then this is not a good procedure to use. And it's not good for any high-risk tumors. It's not good for recurrences because once you're trying to uh, curette where there's a surgical scar, it's really not very good at all. So indications, low-risk basal cell cancers, superficial, nodular, non-infiltrative. Um, you can also use it for your low-risk squamous cell cancers, which we'll talk about in a minute. Do not use it for recurrent tumors. Do not use it if you take the curette and you immediately go into the subcutis, throw the curette away, pull out a blade, cut the tumor out. Remember, quote, the cure is in the curette. I think that's what really does most of the work. I think one mistake that we make is that we use too much hyfrication. I think that's what really leads to a lot of the hypertrophic scars that we do. So I teach our residents, you know, the aggressive treatment is using the curette. You can use it with electrodesiccation lightly. You can use it, you can curette and treat with cryosurgery. There's an article talking about using the curatage followed by amiquamide. So there's different things that you can add to your curatage. But keep in mind, it's the curette that's doing the work. Um, this is an old article, but it's interesting because it talks to the point about the size of the tumor and how, as the basal cell gets larger, your cure rate decreases. This was from NYU. Um, it was a very large uh, study with over 2,000 patients. It was from a few years ago, kind of prior to when most surgery was becoming more popular for more aggressive basal cell cancers. But you can see that the overall five-year recurrence rate uh, was about 13%. And again, that's because there's all tumors included, not just your low-risk tumors. But you can see as the tumor size got bigger, the cure rate, cure rate went down. So again, tumor size does seem to be a factor. Um, excision is probably the other common way that we treat um, skin cancers. Uh, the advantage, from my point of view, is twofold. Number one, you have margin control, and number two, you get improved cosmesis and quicker healing time. I really feel that um, if a patient's really concerned about cosmesis, if you suture close a wound, not only is it going to be easier for them to take care of and quicker healing, but I think the final cosmetic result can be much more predictably in the excellent area. The disadvantages is that, remember, with the bread loaf section, you can miss tumor. Typical bread loaf section only looks at probably 1% to 2% of your total margins. It requires more technical skill. It takes longer to learn how to do a good elliptical excision versus how to curate a tumor. And it takes more time out of your schedule to do a full excisional procedure. Again, bread loaf section is what you're going to get when you put it in a bottle and send it to your pathologist, but it doesn't look at all of your margins. 
Um, these are the typical excisional margins that we recommend. If it's a low-risk basal cell cancer, usually four millimeters is adequate. But if you're excising one of those high-risk tumors that we talked about, you need to probably take a six to ten millimeter margin. Uh, with squamous cell cancers, low risk, four to six millimeters, high risk, six to ten millimeters. The basic oncologic principle is, number one, get the tumor out first, okay? Take the margin that you're supposed to take, worry about the reconstruction second. I always encourage people, don't do any fancy flaps or grafts unless that you know your margins are clear. So if you excise it and you need to keep the wound open for a few days until you get the report back from your pathologist, that's a perfectly adequate way to go. Nothing more frustrating than doing a beautiful rotation flap and the patient comes back and the margins are positive and you have no idea where that positive margin is. So what do you do about positive margins? Well, it's interesting. They've done studies where um, they've immediately done an excision after you do a curatage procedure. And about a third of those patients will still have a positive margin, but yet our cure rate is way higher than that. Our cure rate is 90% or better for curatage procedures. So why don't all tumors come back? Well, there has to be a certain amount of basal cell cancer cells to actually cause a recurrence. And even with excisions with positive margins, the recurrence rate is still only going to be about 35%. So the question is, should you excise um, every positive margin? In today's medical legal climate, um, my answer is usually yes. But when I counsel patients about this, I tell them for sure that if it was a basal cell cancer that had any of those high-risk parameters that we talked about, you should go back and get a clear margin. And number two, if there's a positive deep margin, you want to go back and clear that. So I get referrals all the time for positive margin. And sometimes patients will say, gosh, you know, it's four months out, it looks terrific, and if it was a nodular basal cell cancer with a positive peripheral margin and they want to watch it, that's going to be okay. Um, if it's an infiltrated basal cell cancer with a positive deep margin, I'm going to strongly encourage that we go back and we make sure that we get a clear margin on that. Okay, Mohs surgery, considered to be the gold standard for getting rid of tumors, indicated for high-risk basal cell cancers, and we've talked about those high-risk parameters. What makes it unique? First of all, the surgeon and the pathologist are one and the same person. There's an on-site lab. The tissue's not being sent somewhere else. It's all right there. It's a meticulous mapping technique with hopefully 100% visualization of the peripheral and the deep margins because of the unique horizontal sectioning that's done. Whoops. I'm not quite sure why that happened. Let's try that again. There we go. So the advantages of the most technique is uh, documented high cure rate, some elements of tissue structure and sparing. So if you're working around the tip of a nose or an eyelid, um, you can be a little bit more conservative. You can start off with a one or two millimeter margin as opposed to a four to five millimeter margin. And you can have the confidence of doing immediate reconstruction because you have documented clear margins. So again, I think one of the mistakes that most surgeons did way back when is that they showed you know, terrible, horrendous defects, kind of like what I showed you earlier in the talk. You know, you have something that looks relatively small, and you do most surgery, and you have a huge defect. So most surgeons were kind of um, affiliated with, don't go to see your most surgeon because he's going to give you a big hole. But really, one of the unique aspects of the most surgery is the element of tissue sparing. So if you are working on areas where you're trying to be conservative, you can take a more conservative margin, and a lot of times that's why patients are being sent to me in that central facial area. Disadvantages of Mohs surgery. It's a longer procedure. Patient's going to be there for a half a day. There's a higher cost associated with the procedure. It takes extra training to get good at it. Um, you're only as good as your technician, so you rely heavily on the quality of your frozen sections, and it takes a technician a good six to 12 months to get good at preparing frozen sections. 
frozen sections are never as good as a permanent section. So if I have a worrisome tumor, a high-risk squamous cell cancer, sometimes I'll send it off for a final permanent section to get back up from my dermatopathologist. Um, it's an easily abused procedure, which is why we developed what we call the appropriate use criteria. Um, there's an app for it. You should all be aware of when most surgery is appropriate or not appropriate. And this was an article from many years ago looking at all the different treatment options that we just discussed and the recurrence rates. These are for primary tumors. But you can, again, see that um, excision, curatage, radiation, cross-surgery, they're all in that, you know, 8 to 10 percent range for recurrence, most surgery um, in that 1 to 2 percent range for a primary basal cell cancer. For recurrence, it's a little bit higher. It is interesting that if you look at shorter-term studies, less than five years, the recurrence rate was only 4 percent. But once you follow these patients out, longer periods of time for greater than five years is closer to 8 to, to 10 percent. So how about um, non-surgical treatments? We're going to go through these a little bit at the end of the talk, but keep in mind that for patients who are not able to tolerate a surgical procedure, sometimes there can, can be non-surgical treatments, but surgery is still should be your primary way to treat these skin cancers. Prevention, you heard a lot of this previously from Dr. Badia, so I'm not going to um, talk too much about this, but keep in mind that sun protection is always number one. Oral nicotinamide you heard about. I think we need to do more studies but it's relatively safe, it's relatively inexpensive. It may decrease the risk of future basal cell cancers by about 20 to 25 percent. Retinoids for patients that are at high, high risk, these are usually my organ transplant patients. Celebrex has been looked at in the past, actually seemed to have some benefit, but has had other side effects, so it's sort of fallen off the map. But I think what's really important is aggressive field treatment, and whether that's with PDT or with your topicals, aggressive field treatment for decreasing the risk of future skin cancers, I think, is really the way to go. Um, clothing, lots of clothing companies out there. Sunscreens are very important. There was just an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, big article about sunscreens and how patients don't use enough sunscreen. Um, and some patients just don't like sunscreen or they think it's going to cause cancer. So you always talk to them about protective clothing. Hats with a four-inch brim and a lot of uh, protective clothing companies out there right now. The first one that was ever developed was a young guy out in California. I had a chance to meet him at a meeting, and he was a big outdoor guy, developed melanoma when he was 22 years old, and he said, I still want to hike and bike and do all those great things. And so he's one of the first ones that developed um, one of these clothing companies. Cartoon there, well, don't just look, don't, just don't stand there looking precancerous. So again, he obviously is not, he's not sun protected in the appropriate way, and his spouse is letting him know that right away. Okay, on to squamous cell cancers. Second most common type of skin cancer. Hard to know how many cases per year. Nowhere is in the range of basal cell cancers, but probably at least a half a million to a million new cases every year. In my practice, I'm seeing way more squamous cell cancers than I ever saw before. Estimated lifetime risk, 10 to 15%. Men, uh, almost twice as common than women, um, but women are catching up, unfortunately. Um, incidence increases dramatically with age. We don't see as many squamous cell cancers in a younger population as we do with basal cell cancers. And the risk of metastatic disease is in that 4 to 5 percent range. So there are people that die from squamous cell cancers, and it's what I worry about every day. And probably bad squamous cell cancers keep me up at night more than any other cancers that I take care of. And this is a case in point. This is actually a, a relatively young guy that I saw from the um, from the southern tier of New York, a rural area, he came, up with a, came in with a relatively innocuous-looking squamous cell cancer on his nasal tip. 
Um, this was a well to moderately differentiated squamous cell cancer. We cleared it with two stages of Mohs surgery, did a little bilobe flap, and sent him back to his um, local dermatologist. Um, 18 months later, he had what he thought was a sinus infection, did not respond to antibiotics, had some swelling in his nasal sidewall. He saw an ENT guy who did a biopsy, recurrent squamous cell cancer, aggressive therapy, wide excision, partial rhinectomy, postoperative radiation, and zolota. He really got hit with everything really quickly. A year later, recurrence, um, more surgery, more removal of his nose. Eight months later, recurrence down to his cheek. He had to have a maxillectomy, a tonal rhinectomy, um, and development of a nasal prosthesis. So again, just pointing out how aggressive these cancers can be. Now the good news is he's now 10 years out and he's cancer free, but this is a young, a young kid with a relatively small squamous cell cancer with bad disease. So that's what keeps me up at night. Risk factors, fair skin, males, older age. Um, UV exposure, more common um, in people who've had lots of sun exposure. Um, underlying immunosuppression, our organ transplant patients get a lot of aggressive squamous cell cancer. Same thing with patients with CLL and HIV. We didn't see many HIV patients because they didn't live long enough to get their skin cancers. Now that they're living longer with the immunosuppression, we're seeing more aggressive skin cancers. Um, some squamous cell cancers seem to be related to HPV. Um, we see these periungual and uh, genital lesions, probably HPV related. It's really hard to figure out um, how exact that is because a lot of people have, you know, will type out for HPV, but it's what we think is going on. And sometimes even with our organ transplant recipient patients, we think HPV may play a role. But most of the time it's going to be secondary to sun exposure. I don't know why this is doing this, so let me keep trying here. Anyway, you can advance the next one for me because it doesn't seem to... All right, thank you. So again, let's think in terms of low risk and high risk. Our low risk squamous cell cancers are going to be Bowen's disease, or you'll get this reading from your pathologist, superficial squamous cell arising in an AK. I don't worry too much about that clinically if it looks superficial. And even the keratoacanthoma types of well-differentiated squamous cell cancers, probably in that low risk category. I don't know, sorry. Okay, an example of Bowen's disease, low risk. Next slide, please. For some reason, this is not advancing here. Please use the, the clicker. I, I am. Okay. Um, and then sometimes you'll see these cutaneous horns. Again, at the base of the cutaneous horn can be fairly aggressive, but most of the time these are more uh, superficial. Okay, high-risk features, um, thank you. Okay, High-risk features include uh, size, depth, um, histology, uh, immunosuppression that we talked about, and location. We'll go over some of these because they're important and again, figuring out your therapy for these patients. High-risk squamous cell cancers, the two big ones from my point of view are 
size and depth. And in fact, the newest staging system that just came out from the AGCC, size is really the most important factor for high-risk versus low-risk squamous cell cancers. Depth is also very important. The NCC and guidelines talk about two millimeter depth. I actually think that's pretty thin. An awful lot of the squamous cell cancers that we see are going to be greater than two millimeters. But there's been good studies from the ENT literature that suggests somewhere around six to seven millimeters depth is important. And then most of the time they talk about if it's greater than the subcutaneous tissue. So if you have a squamous cell cancer that goes deeper than the sub-Q, then that's a high-risk squamous cell cancer. And again, large and deep squamous cell cancers, these are obviously very high risk. It's off the head and neck area, but you can see it's down um, to the muscle, um, removing this tumor. This is in the uh, temple area, right down on the muscle fascia, so through the subcutaneous tissue. Again, size and depth of invasion, right down to the bone. I can't tell you how many elderly male gentlemen who have balding heads who come in with squamous cell cancers like this. Um, way too many of them. And again, down to the tendon sheath, back of the hand, very common area for aggressive squamous cell cancers. We all know that there's a lot of sun damage on the back of the hand. So size and depth of invasion are really the big ones. Location, ear and lower lip seem to be high-risk locations uh, to a lesser extent, the genital area and the scalp area. So again, you see these larger tumors on the ear through the cartilage. This would be high-risk location. Same thing on that lower lip. You can see the one on the right-hand side, that's a large, deep tumor. They probably need to actually have their lymph nodes looked at ASAP. The lower lip seems to be higher risk, probably because of the proximity to the, uh, to the nodes. And anytime I get a large squamous cell that overlies the parotid gland, um, I usually have to have my head and neck surgeons involved because usually when I excise these, I'm right down on the parotid bed, especially in my elderly patients who don't have very much subcutaneous tissue. You take that tumor out and you're almost always right at the parotid bed right away. Uh, this was one of the first articles I published many years ago. I wish I never had because I'm still getting referrals for penile cancers. Um, Unfortunately, my clinic is right next to urology, so um, the head of the urology is a cancer specialist. He trained in Madison with Fred Mose, and so he always yells my name. Come on over here, Mark. We got another one for you. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I don't want to. Not, not another one. But anyways, this was a small study, 20 patients utilizing Mose surgery to clear the tumor. Our local recurrence rate was really pretty low as far as we got good local control. But 20% of these patients that we took care of developed metastatic disease. So again, speaks to the high-risk nature um, of metastatic disease in these genital uh, squamous cell cancers. Histology, very important. Um, if you get your reading that is showing a poorly differentiated squamous cell cancer or if they make notation of perineural invasion or vascular lymphatic invasion, that's high risk. You can see here you actually see tumor cells within the vascular and lymphatic. So when you see that, that's not good. Um, the diameter of the nerve does make a difference. So if your pathologist is able to tell you whether this is a named nerve or whether it's greater than 0.1 millimeters or not, this article came out a few years ago. But the size of the nerve seems to make a difference as far as whether it's going to be more high risk or low risk. The interesting thing is, is most of the time when you see perineural invasion, with a uh, more significant nerve size, there's usually other factors that go along with that. It's usually a large tumor, it's a deep tumor, um, or it's poorly differentiated. So clinical features, this was one of my organ transplant patients. I had seen him 
literally four weeks prior for his examination. He called and said, I got this thing out of my hand. He comes in. So rapid growth, um, or if the patients are complaining about pain, um, that's something that you don't see with basal cell cancers, but a rapidly growing aggressive squamous cell cancer will often hurt. So if they're complaining about pain, that's significant. And certainly if they have any cranial nerve involvement paresthesias, it has to really raise a red flag and you need to get MRIs to see what's going on. This is a recurrent squamous cell cancer. Whenever you see lots of purple lines, it means I don't know what's going on. I don't know where to go. Um, and that was very ill-defined, didn't look that bad. You can see fairly large defect. About two months later, he had uh, metastatic disease. So recurrence can be difficult. And we don't see this very often, but any old chronic uh, burn site, old sites of discoid lupus, any chronic inflammatory disease can give rise to aggressive squamous cell cancers. This is an old burn site here. Immunosuppression we talked about. Very, very important. We're seeing more and more patients who are immunosuppressed because of medications, because of underlying CLL, because they're organ transplant recipients. This was one of my CLL patients. You can see where I had excised and done a nice skin graft. And then six months later, he has all these metastatic lesions in his scalp. Um, this is an article looking at CLL patients. And you can see the recurrence in this group of CLL patients was 25% versus an expected recurrence rate in the control group of about 4%. So this was seven times higher than you would expect. So if you have a patient with CLL and a squamous cell cancer, keep in mind that they're immunosuppressed and it's going to be much more aggressive. So staging, staging squamous cell cancers is important. And there are two staging systems that you should be aware of because they will help you make some decisions about how aggressive to be with your treatment and whether your patients need to be referred off for more treatments. This was from um, a Boston uh, study. Chris Schmaltz had been working on squamous cell cancers for a long time. And she basically came up with the risk factors that we talked about in her group who had developed metastatic disease. Tumors greater than two centimeters, poorly differentiated histology, perineural invasion with a, with a nerve size greater than 0.1, and depth of invasion beyond the subcutaneous tissue. And if they had two to three of these risk factors that we just talked about, they fell into this group that she called T2B. And it was interesting, in that T2B category, it was only 5% of her patients but it, re, it was responsible for 70% of the Mets and 80% of the deaths. So basically, if you look at the risk factors and you have two or three of these risk factors, that's going to be a high-risk patient. So that's what's important to know. And this is the new AGCC staging that just came out this past January. And they included some of Chris Schmaltz's work, but you can see that size was more important. So a T1 tumor is anything less than 2 centimeters. A T2 tumor is greater than 2 but less than 4 centimeters. And then you get into this T3 group, which is greater than 4 centimeters in size, minor bone erosion, which we really don't see very often, um, deep invasion beyond the subcutaneous tissue, which is what we talked about, or greater than 6 millimeters, what we talked about. So again, size and depth are the two important things and then perineural invasion. So they lump a lot more into that group. It can be large, it can be deep, it can have perineural invasion, or it can be onto the bone. So their T3 group is much more diffuse, but that's the most current AGCC staging system. But I think both staging systems speak to the fact of you need to know what your risk factors are, because if you have you know, two to three to four of those risk factors, the patients have a very, very significant risk of recurrence of metastatic disease. So treatment. 
Low risk, we talked about curatage for bones, disease, superficial squamous cells, perfectly okay. But for invasive squamous cell cancers, I like to have margin control, excise it with a four to six millimeter margin. If it's moderately to poorly differentiated, excise it with up to a centimeter margin or refer for mode surgery. This was an article out of um, an Australian group. It was a prospective study looking at 1,200 patients who had invasive squamous cell cancers treated with Mohs surgery. It's hard to get in to see a Mohs surgeon in Australia because they have so much skin cancer down there. You can see that almost 40% of these patients had recurrent squamous cell cancers. Um, 97% of them were in the head and neck area. So these were obviously aggressive squamous cell cancers. You can see that for primary tumors, their overall recurrence with Mohs surgery was um, about 2.6% for recurrence just about 6%. And that's about what I quote patients. Um, if it's a highly aggressive squamous cell cancer, I usually say you know, your chance of recurrence is about 5%. If it's more low risk, then they're going to have a, a higher success rate. So for your high-risk squamous, squamous cell cancer patients, if there's a Mohs surgeon that you can refer to, that's still an appropriate way to go. This is what we tried to avoid. This was one of my Early patients I took care of when I was a fellow at the University of Michigan. He had, we had done surgery up in the parotid area about four to six months prior, and he came in for his checkup, and he had a big node in his neck, and his lungs were full of squamous cell cancers. So it accounts for at least 3,000 deaths per year, maybe even more than that. Um, by the time you feel clinically uh, obvious nodes, prognosis is not so great. The problem is, is there's a lot of practice gaps here, and it's been frustrating for me over the past 30 years that we talked about these same practice gaps at meetings 30 years ago, and we still haven't come up with answers. When should patients have imaging done? When should they get adjuvant radiation? When should they have a sentinel lymph node biopsy done? When should they be sent for an elective lymph node dissection? We still don't have clear answers to that. A lot of my high-risk patients go to head and neck tumor boards, and we make some decisions there, but there's still a lot of practice gaps. These are just two articles that were published in our literature, uncertainty and variance in the management of high-risk squamous cell cancers, data needed for management of, of cutaneous squamous cell cancers. So again, lots of unanswered questions, a lot of data, a lot of clinical studies that still need to be done. Treatment, um, you want to resect the, the nodes, you want to have your best head and neck surgeon available. You probably want to consider adjuvant radiation if there's lots of nodal involvement. But probably the most exciting thing that's out there, um, there are some new immune checkpoint inhibitor drugs that are now going to be available for advanced um, and metastatic squamous cell cancer. So I think this is going to change the way we approach some of these high-risk tumors in the near future. Our previous drugs, Zolota and Herbitux, okay, but not great. So I think you'll be hearing more over the next 6 to 12 months about some of these new checkpoint inhibitors for advanced and metastatic squamous cell cancer. Okay, so we have about 20, about 15 minutes left. I'm just going to run through some non-surgical um, options with you for skin cancers. And again, we're going to talk about topicals, PDT, radiation, intralesionals, and some of these oral drugs that I just mentioned. So the topicals that we basically have that are FDA-approved are 5-FU and amiquamide. Um, Picado is not FDA-approved. Um, there's been one small study that's not been published yet for superficial basal cells, so that's why I put a couple of big question marks there, because I'm still waiting for the company to do more studies for superficial basal cell cancers. 5-FU, as you know, has a cytotoxic effect. It inhibits DNA synthesis, and that's how it works. 
It's mainly used for actinic keratosis. It's really not well studied for superficial basal cells. This was from the PDR, quote, success rate is approximately 93% based on 113 lesions in 54 patients. Well, this is from a long time ago. There's no way that study would ever get FDA approval now, but they did get FDA approval for 5-FU for superficial basal cell cancers. Side effects, obviously, are redness and burning pain and discomfort, and compliance is always an issue. Um, this was a study that looked at um, th about 31 superficial basal cell cancers on the trunk and extremities, and they treated with topical 5% 5-FU twice a week for up to 12 weeks, and then they excised it three weeks later to check for the histologic cure rate, which is about 90%. So if you use... 5-FU aggressively for superficial basal cell cancer, you can tell the patients based on a small study that's about 90% success rate. However, the important thing is that the time to clinical cure, the average time to clinical cure was about 10 and a half weeks. So it's not like you're going to use this for two to four weeks. You have to use this twice a day for an average of 10 to 12 weeks in order to get uh, a histologic cure rate. Okay, most of these patients had good cosmetic income, uh, good cosmetic outcomes. It was well tolerated because, again, there was just one small area. Um, but if you're going to use it, you have to use it for a longer period of time than you think that you might need to. Same thing for Bowen's disease. There have been five studies, um, not really well controlled, looking at about 134 in situ squamous cell cancers. And again, you can see that the clearance rate is going to be fairly low if you just use it in a non-aggressive fashion. So you see the studies where they used it um, every day for a week and then twice a day for three weeks, the clearance rate was only about 50%. But if you used it twice a day for eight weeks, your clearance rate was about 85%. So again, topical use, it does work, but the patients have to be pretty motivated because they're going to be using it for eight to 10 to 12 weeks. Okay, amicomide, much better studied for the treatment of basal cell cancers. It was FDA approved for superficial basal cell cancers back in 2004. So we have quite a few years of use of amiquimide. As you know, it's an immune response modifier. It has lots of different ways that it works on the toll-like uh, toll uh, receptor 7. It activates dendritic cells, um, enhances immunity. So it's kind of a, kind of a novel um, approach to the way this works. We didn't really have any of these immune response modifiers before. Lots of different regimens that are out there, once a day, twice a day, every other day, four weeks, six weeks, 16 weeks, three times a week, five times a week. It's all over the board. Um, but again, this is from the guidelines that said once a day treatment, five times a week for six weeks or longer is usually what gives you the best um, effective regimen. And again, you have to go back to the initial phase three study, which was a good study, and they looked at 5% of miquimide, and they used it five times a week or seven times a week. And the histologic cure rates you can see for five and seven times a week were 82 and 79%, so about the same. But the local skin reactions for five times a week was way less, only about 28% versus 44%. So that's why the company initially said, we're going to use this Monday through Friday, for six weeks. They had also done a 12-week study with about the same efficacy. So that's where the initial Monday through Friday for six weeks comes from. Symptoms, as you know, itching is the most common. Really not much in the way of pain. Um, that's usually relatively low, whereas with 5-FU it's much higher. Uh, but about 10% of patients are going to require a rest period just because they get pretty inflamed. Keep in mind that when you talk to your patients about using this, you have to tell them 
that if they get a brisk reaction, that's really good, especially if it's early on. If they get a brisk reaction in the first um, two weeks, you can feel much more comfortable that it's going to be effective. Um, how much erythema they get is going to correlate with the clearance, and they've shown that in the studies for both AKs and for superficial basal cell cancers. The patients that call up and say, hey, this is great, I, can, I hardly have any reaction at all, it's probably not going to work very well, or else the cancer's mainly gone. So this is probably more of a brisk reaction than you want. This was uh, one of my elderly patients with a superficial basal cell cancer on her lip, and this was after her first week of, of once a day for five days. A lot of crusting, a lot of inflammation, a lot of irritation. Really not much in the way of discomfort, some pruritus. Um, we gave her a rest for a few days, but she completed four weeks of therapy and complete clearance. So how, do, how well does this work five years later? Um, this was um, a study out of Europe with about 180 patients. You can see that the five-year success rate, and again, these are patients that were initially had responded with a clinical cure rate, and they followed them out for five years, and five years later, about 87% of them were still clear of their tumors. So pretty good um, long-term recurrence. Most of the time, the patients that did recur, there are 18 patients out of this group that recurred, most of those occurred within the first uh, two years. So if you expect a recurrence, it's going to be probably early on. Does it work for nodular basal cell cancers? Not FDA approved for nodular basal cell cancers, but studies have been done. This was published in the uh, archives of dermatology. They looked at six weeks and 12 weeks. You can see that the best you're going to do for histologic cure rate is probably somewhere around 70% for, for a six-week study. So it does work, um, but not as well. Uh, this was a study that Ted Rosen did. Um, Ted invited me to be here, so I also always have to talk at least about one of his studies. So, Ted, here's one of your studies. Um, there's really not very much out there. It's not FDA-approved for Bowen's disease, but this is a retrospective study done at the VA. They looked at 49 patients. They used a micromide daily for six weeks, a mean follow-up of just about a year and a half, but their clinical response rate, clinical cure rate, was about 86%. So, obviously, you know, they, the authors put, we need a randomized prospective study surprisingly yet to be done. So people do use it, but we don't have a lot of data as far as how robust it's going to work in that particular case. Just very briefly about Lenscom malignant melanoma, because I'm mainly supposed to be talking about uh, non-melanoma skin cancers. But the question always comes up is, can you use a micromide for Lenscom malignant and Lenscom malignant melanoma? Well, again, surgery is the treatment of choice. Most of the time, you're going to have your highest success rate if you surgically remove these. I use a modified Mohs technique with um, permanent sections. But not all patients can tolerate surgery. Your elderly patients, your very large tumors. Um, there's lots of data out there, but there's no standard regimen. Some of the studies have fairly short follow-up. Um, some clearance rates are clinical without histologic correlation. But if you take all that into effect, if you look at all the studies that are out there, you can still see clearance rates between 66 and 100% with an overall composite clearance rate of about 88%. So there's no doubt in my mind that imiquimide does work for lenticum maligna. I still would prefer to do surgery, but when it's not feasible, this is a non-surgical option. Optimized treatment, I usually try to use it um, every day. Um, if patients are having trouble tolerating it, then we, then we kind of back off to five times a week. I usually use it for a minimum of two to three months. Um, sometimes if you're not getting much of a reaction, you can use a little bit of tisserotene gel to cause a little bit of an inflammatory reaction, but I rarely have to do that. 
Sometimes if you're looking for a more brisk reaction, you can occlude it at night with a little saran wrap. You want to treat about a centimeter around, because remember the lens malignant cells will often be much further than you would think. But the nice thing about immune response modifier is that they'll often recognize those cells and treat it. And you want to make sure you get an inflammatory reaction. If it's not getting red, if it's not getting inflamed, it's probably not going to work because that's how it works with the release of their cytokines. So I sort of became a believer when I saw um, this patient. He was my dermatologist when I was a kid growing up in my little town in upstate New York. His daughter was one of our residents, now a practicing dermatologist. And uh, Art had just had a bad fall and a broken hip when he was cleaning his gutters, which dermatologists should not be doing. Um, and he said, you know, Mark, he goes, I, I really don't want to have surgery. I know that you can do a good job, but I've been reading about this amiclamide cream. Can I give it a try? And I said, sure, Art, you can, you can try whatever you want. And so he used it for a total of eight weeks. Um, you can see his reaction four weeks into therapy. He's got erythema encrusting and a good result one month after treatment. Now, that was back in 2010. He still is completely clear. So when your own dermatologist tells you he wants to try the drug, um, it just, it's, it's nice to have something else besides surgery when patients say they don't want to have surgery. So quickly, PDT, you heard a lot earlier from uh, Dr. Badia about PDT. Um, we're going to be specifically talking about skin cancer and not actinic keratosis. Again, if you debulk it with a curette, that does seem to improve your cure rate. That's true for AKs or anything that's there. It works best for smaller and thin basal cell cancers. You often have to do more than one treatment. It's usually two or three or four treatments. There is some pain and photosensitivity, as you might expect. And keep in mind that most of the studies that we're going to be talking about out there, these are studies done with the methyl ester and red light. So in Australia and Europe, PDT is used a lot for superficial nodular basal cell cancers. Not so much here. Um, there's just a very short period of time when we had um, MAL available, um, but within a year it was gone. And the reason it works better is you get deeper penetration. That's why it works a little bit better. So again, there are 12 studies for PDT and superficial basal cell cancers. These were large phase three studies. You can see that the recurrence rate is going to be about 20 to 25 percent. Very good cosmetic results. Um, this was from a consensus guideline study that basically says, quote, offers an advantage for large, extensive, and multiple lesions. Probably not as good as curatage, but when patients can't tolerate that, it may be something to consider. Nodular basal cell cancers, again, these were all with the methyl ester. Um, over 200 patients were looked at with five phase three studies. Again, good initial response rates, you know, 70 to 90 percent initially, but again, five-year recurrence rates are going to be in that 15 percent range. MAL always works better than the ALA better due to better tissue penetration. And the quote here is, surgery remains the gold standard, but PDT will give you better cosmesis. Bones disease, um, again, at least as effective as cryotherapy or 5-FU, fewer side effects, um, but certainly no data that suggests that you'd ever, ever try to use it for an invasive squamous cell cancer. So there's some studies out there looking at superficial basal cell, superficial squamous cell cancers, but it'll be nice if we ever get the methyl ester red light because I think we'll have um, better luck. This was a head-to-head -head study published a few years ago looking at PDT versus topical amiquamide versus topical 5-FU for superficial basal cell cancers. Basic bottom line, amiquamide was superior. 5-FU was as good as MAL-PDT. But you can see three years later, 
and micromide had the highest success rate with an 80% success rate, 5-FU, 68%, PDT, 58%. So again, you know, imiquimide may be your best go-to topical agent for a superficial disease when you want to try to not use some surgical therapy. And then just in the last couple of minutes, intralesional therapy, it's been around for a long time. It's not used very often. I don't use it very often, but sometimes when nothing else is available, I'll use a little bit of intralesional methotrexate or intralesional um, 5-FU because it does work. The studies are very small numbers of patients. Um, these are what have been used, methotrexate, 5-FU, interferon, and bleomycin. Um, this was a patient who had already lost her right leg um, to a squamous cell cancer that was treated with radiation, and she developed um, extensive radiation necrosis and had to have her leg amputated. And she comes in with this large, well-differentiated squamous cell cancer, and she said, you're not touching it. And I said, well, let me try something. So we injected it with methotrexate, uh, two injections, and it completely cleared, and she's been tumor-free of this tumor. So it can be helpful when patients, um, when nothing else seems to be working for these patients. Uh, radiotherapy, you're going to hear more about this this afternoon from Brian Berman. Um, overall, it's a good treatment um, with cure rates of about 90%, but we usually use this for patients who can't tolerate surgery who are a little bit older. We're always worried about um, recurrent disease. We're worried about new skin cancers forming where they had radiation, and we're worried about the length of treatment and the cost. 20 to 25 treatments is typically needed for your standard radiotherapy. Um, scars can look worse over time. There was actually a study looking out of the plastic surgery literature looking at uh, radiation versus an excision and closure, and patients were happier with their excision surgical site. Avoid the lower legs because they're going to be very, very slow healing, um, and the recurrences can be very difficult to treat. And of all the treatments that we talked about today, it's the most expensive treatment. What's a little bit new and different, and again, what Dr. Berman will be talking about later, is superficial x-ray therapy. Fewer treatments, sometimes as few as five or six treatments will do the trick. Um, the equipment can be in your office. It's smaller. It's less expensive. Cosmesis is good. This was a large study uh, done out of a private practice group in Florida, but they had 1,700 patients. Now, most of these were older patients with non-aggressive cancer, so most of these were superficial basal cells and difficult-to-treat areas, lower legs, nose, etc. You can see that, you know, if you pick the right tumor and you treat these patients, that their overall success rate can be very good. You can see the two-year and the five-year um, recurrence rates are very, very low. So, again, selection of the correct patients with sort of non-aggressive histology can be quite helpful. And they did seem to have an increased recurrence rate as the tumors got larger in size, greater than two centimeters seemed to be the cutoff point. So, again, larger tumors are more difficult to treat. And then finally, a word about oral treatments. Um, Vismo has now been out for a few years. It's always nice when a new drug comes along that we can add to what we have to treat these patients. It was approved in 2012 for metastatic basal cell or locally advanced basal cell that's recurred following surgery and who are not candidates for radiation. It's 150 milligrams a day. Until, degree, until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. And this was the early study. Didn't really work very well for metastatic disease. The cure rate for metastatic disease is almost zero as far as complete response rates, but sometimes it did, there was a response. But for the advanced basal cells, you know, about a third, nothing happened. About a third had a partial response. About a third had um, a cure. 
So it, it definitely was something new that we could add for difficult-to-treat basal cell cancers. Um, it's been used in our patients with basal cell nevus syndrome. Um, and some of these patients just developed surgical fatigue. Please, Dr. Brown, no more surgery. Um, and some of the results have been remarkable. However, in the study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, about 50% of the patients discontinued the drug because of side effects. So um, these patients have been through a lot. They're willing to try anything that it takes. But even then, some of the side effects were difficult for the patients to tolerate. Um, this was one of my patients who I had been seeing on a very regular basis, and he was lost to follow-up. He just disappeared. Um, my oculoplastic surgeon saw him at a baseball game and said, geez, I saw, I saw our patient. You know, he looked terrible. And I said, yeah, I don't know what happened to him. And so he finally showed up, and he said, my family made me come in. And that's what he looked like. And we started him on Vismo, and within a couple months, he just had, you know, a remarkable response. Not everything went away. You can see that very large tumor on his upper lip didn't respond at all. You know, eight months into therapy, still was there. We had to go to the OR and take care of that. But you can see this huge tumor burden on his back, and this was about three or four months into therapy, a remarkable response. So um, it, 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 it was nice to have that drug available for him. Side effects you're all aware of, muscle spasms, hair loss, um, loss of taste, because of loss of taste, you know, some weight loss and some fatigue. But most of these are pretty well tolerated. There's now another hedgehog inhibitor that's out, so uh, Vismo's not the only one that's out there. We now have a couple, of, and they both have almost the same exact profile of side effects, which you would expect because they work about the same. Why do I like these uh, hedgehog inhibitors? It adds to our available treatments that we have. The mechanism of action makes sense. It's always nice when it makes sense. Um, it's there for those few patients with metastatic basal cells. It's really all we have to offer them. There's been some extremely impressive clinical results for advanced basal cell cancers. And we might be able to shrink tumors and then have a less aggressive surgical procedure, but we're still trying to figure that part out. And many of these patients do have improved quality of life. What I don't like is we still don't know what the cure rate is. We don't know how long to treat. Um, it is expensive, about $8,000 a month. Um, resistance can develop. We still, not, we still need to define what locally advanced means and who should get the drug. Um, and there are side effects, and there's still a fair number of people who discontinue therapy. Um, it's going to be used for metastatic basal cell, no options for surgery because of the disease or to shrink the tumor before. Not necessarily is it going to be a cure for basal cells, but it might be a way to control a basal cell when surgery is not feasible. And this was just one small study that was published this year, actually trying to look at how um, it, the drug is currently being used. The median duration of treatment, just about six months. That seems to be the average amount of treatment. 47% of the patients first had surgery or radiation prior to getting the drug. And almost 40% of the patients had surgery or radiation after getting the drug. So you can see it's being used in a lot of different mechanisms. And that's probably the future of this drug is to figure out how we're going to use it. So again, I'm not a golfer, but we're going to end with this last slide. Um, every golf shot is unique and different, and there's a reason why there's 14 golf clubs in a bag. I think one of the great aspects of taking care of our dermatology patients is that we have lots of different therapeutic regimens to offer them for their basal cell cancers and squamous cell cancers, anywhere from very simple treatments to very um, aggressive systemic treatments. It's very important to always define low risk, high risk, and to have a conversation with your patients about all the different options and what they think they tolerate best. So thank you very much. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take a couple questions until I'm asked to 
uh, until the next speaker shows up. So do you use acetretin in your transplant patients who are getting recurrent squamous cell carcinomas? If so, what's the dosing? Um, yes, um, I do uh, on occasion. Um, the problem is that these patients are already on a ton of medications, and for some reason they don't seem to tolerate the systemic retinoids as well, and it's difficult to keep them on it for a long period of time. I usually start low, um, 25 milligrams, and we'll go from there. I actually have more luck using acetretin in my non-transplant patients who have a ton of actinic damage. So they look like a transplant patient, but they're not immunosuppressed. They just have fair skin, and they've got um, just a huge burden of actinic disease in, in squamous cell cancers. So these are the ladies who have, you know, 20 squamous cell cancers on their lower legs, or my farmer who's just loaded with um, cancers on their scalp. Um, and I actually have more luck with those patients. And again, I start low and I go slow, so 10 to 25 milligrams. Do you routinely recommend high-risk patients take nicotinamide for prevention? I, um, any patient now who says, what can I do to try to prevent more skin cancers, the first thing I talk to them about is, well, you should make sure that you use sunscreens. Um, you should use protective clothing, because that's the number one thing. And then I talk to them about the fact that there is this one study, and it has not um, been verified yet with larger studies, but it has um, a success of about 20 to 25%. If they wanted to try it, it seems to be very well tolerated, very inexpensive. Um, and if they wanted to see if it made a difference, fine. I'm not, um, I don't know how this is going to play out over the long term, but whenever I have anything that's safe and inexpensive and it might work a little bit, I usually recommend it to them. So I've got some patients on it. When measuring tumor size, do you measure biopsy size or after biopsy size or both? So I, I guess this is in reference to um, when you're coding for a tumor size. Um, so I usually measure the preoperative size. If I'm doing Mohs surgery, I'll have a postoperative defect. Um, but if I'm doing a, just a tumor excision with an excisional procedure, a curatage procedure, I'll usually measure it after, um, after I've done the final excision. How do you know you've removed the superficial skin cancer with curatage? You don't. You, know, you tell the patient there is no margin control. It's based on the feel of the curette. Uh, is it a texture that you feel with involved versus non-involved skin? Yes, to a certain degree. Um, I'll tell you how I usually like to treat superficial basal cells when I do an E, D, and C. I usually take my, and this came from doing um, lots of CO2 ablation a long time ago when we, when we used to use CO2 for bones and superficial basal cells. I usually try to get some tissue separation from the heat. So I'll take my hyphricator and using electrofulguration, which means I don't touch the skin, I will usually electrofulgurate the superficial basal cell with about a four millimeter margin around that. And that will give me some heat separation of that superficial basal cell. I'll take my curette and it just kind of peels off at that point. So that's how I typically will treat it and then I'll aggressively curette it. And that's usually all I do. Um, and it's, it's really pretty straightforward. Um, I've been told all infiltrated basal cell cancer should be treated with the moles regardless of size or location. Is this true? Um, well, infiltrative tumors do, by definition of their histology, they do meet the um, appropriate use criteria. So even if you have an infiltrated basal cell cancer on the back, uh, the appropriate use criteria will say that's appropriate for Mohs. Does that mean that Mohs is the only way to treat it? Absolutely not. So if you've got an infiltrated basal cell cancer on the neck um, or back and it's relatively small and you can excise it with a six millimeter margin, most of the time you're going to get a clear margin. Now you have to tell the patient, 
you know, it, if it comes back positive, we might have to do more. But by definition, the, not every infiltrated basal cell cancer needs Mohs surgery, but Mohs surgery is certainly appropriate if it is an infiltrative histology. Just keep in mind that infiltrative histologies are much less predictable. I actually will get referrals from my dermatologists where they've done an EDNC on a, on a small basal cell cancer, and then the report will come back, this is an infiltrative basal cell cancer, and then they get nervous, like, ah, maybe I didn't really get it out with my curette, and they'll send it in for Mohs surgery, and I think that's appropriate. But keep in mind that there's lots of different ways to approach these cancers. If you have a positive margin after excision, can you treat with non-surgical options for low-risk tumors? Absolutely. So when I'm doing Mohs surgery and I'm tracking out an infiltrative cancer and I'm looking under the microscope and there's superficial disease everywhere, and I know that if I keep tracking that, I'm going to be going forever, I'll, I stop. I don't, I don't try to excise every little focus of superficial basal cell I can because I'm never going to be successful. And I will then, once the surgical site is healed, I will then treat postoperatively with imiquimide or 5-FU. So... Um, same thing with ED and C. Um, if, it's, if it's been a recurrence or you're worried about it, you can always go back and treat postoperatively with a drug like amiquimide. Hey, thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.